Welcome to the UGA BCM podcast, a ministry of the BCM at the University of Georgia. To find out more about us, follow us on Instagram at UGA BCM. We hope you enjoy today's episode. tonight. Tommy, thanks so much for the introduction. I did think it would be really funny if after all you said about me, I just got up here and totally tanked, just bombed. That'd be fantastic. Uh, do we have any Prince people in the room tonight? Yeah! Thank you. I want you to know I love you all evenly, but I love them more evenly than the rest of you. Uh, just because I see him every week and I'm thankful for him. So thanks for being here. This is great. I really am encouraged and thankful to be here. I'm excited about the opportunity to uh, continue in your study uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. I love this passage of scripture and I've been given uh, one of the great little pieces here. I was thinking, Tommy, I guess it's just like next guy up gets the next text. And I don't know who's got next week, but I'm glad I've got this week. Next week's a super hard one, Uh, but this is a really fun one. And I think it's really practical for us. It's really helpful. Uh, I was really encouraged as I was able to spend some time in it this week and think about it and really meditating on it this morning. I think it's going to be good for us. So if you have a copy of God's Word, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we're going to be in verses 13 through 16. I read an article recently talking about uh, what they refer to as the decline of Christianity in in America. And here's some of the stats that I saw. Uh, In 1976, 1976, 91% of Americans identified themselves as Christians. 1976, 91%. Uh, In 2007, that was down to 78%. In 2022, now it is 64%, and they're projecting it to be 35% in 2070. Uh, so in not that long from now, they're expecting over about a 50-year uh, period to see a 58% decrease in people who I call themselves Christians. Now, as I read that article, I was trying to decide if that was bad news or good news. Now, it automatically seems like bad news, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, on one hand, you could say, man, can you believe this? Like, we're losing the battle. Like, there's so many less people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ. And I think you could take that stat, and you could really make everybody feel guilty for not doing good enough to share the gospel, and I'm sure that would be great. But, but I'm wondering if, if we haven't just had a 58% decrease in amount of Christians, maybe we've just had a 58% discre- uh, uh, in decrease in liars, Like, think about it. There's no way in 1979, 91% of Americans were Christians, right? Because if that stat was true, that would mean this year, 64% of Americans are Christian. How many of you think 64% of Americans are Christian? Like, that's crazy. There's no way that's possibly true. And so it could be that, that what's happening is we might even be increasing in the percentage of number of people that are actually Christians, but decreasing in the number of people who used to say they're Christians but now fully recognize that they're not Christians. And if that's true, that's a good statistic. That's a helpful thing. And I don't know which it is. I don't know at all. But I do know it identifies one problem either way. Either whether it's uh, on one hand a vast number of people calling themselves Christians or not. Or we see this decrease. Either way there's a problem And I think one of the problems is we have come a long way from God's original intention for followers of Jesus Christ to be distinct in every area of their life. 
Like it shouldn't be that there's 50% of the people saying yes to this question that know nothing about Christ and look nothing like Christ and care nothing about Christ, but that's been the case. And I think we all know it still is the case. It's still the case that a large number of people who call themselves Christians don't look like Jesus and don't know that much about Jesus. I've been reading the book of Deuteronomy lately just in my Bible, daily Bible reading plan and uh, I just am, am, am amazed at how many times the Lord says to his people, my intention for you is for you to be a distinct people. I don't want there to be any other people in the rest of the, the earth that are like you. I want you to look different. I want you to act different. I want you to talk different. We just started two weeks ago uh, the book of Proverbs on Sunday morning. That's what we're doing. And one of the things I said this past Sunday is one of the reasons Proverbs is important is Proverbs teaches you how to be married unlike the lost people next door. And how to parent unlike the lost people next door. And how to eat and how to drink and how to live and how to work different than all of the other ways that people do that don't know Jesus. Because every area of our life, God has called us to be distinct. And God's intention has always been a distinct people. A people who in every area of their life look differently than others. And I think what we're seeing when we see this idea that 64% of people identify themselves as Christians, if that's true, if they actually are, we have a massive problem because they're not acting like it. And you would certainly think that our world would be a much better place. This nation would be much better if 64% of the people that lived here actually loved Jesus. And I think our text tonight speaks to that. It speaks to this vision that God has for us of being a distinct people, of people who are making a difference in the lives of those around us, of people who are noticeable, of people who are conspicuous, of people who when you see us, there's something obviously different about you. And really what God says here, what Jesus says here in Matthew 5 is really everything that God has been saying from the very beginning, particularly in the forming of the people of Israel, it has always been God's design to have a distinct people. And so look at it there in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. It says this. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I want to give you three words tonight. If you're taking notes, I want to give you three words that help us to understand what Jesus wants to do in our lives right now, tonight, in this moment, through this text. The first word I want you to have is the word identity. Identity. The first thing Jesus speaks to is the identity of the disciple. Now, the first thing I noticed when I began to read this text is it doesn't begin with a command. It doesn't begin with a you better do this or you should do this or I can't believe you're not doing this or you better get better at this. And it's interesting because this feels like an evangelistic text, doesn't something that really is for us to be more effective in our evangelism, to reach more people for Jesus. And I don't know if you grew up in church, but every sermon about leading people to Jesus feels very much like a heavy command, doesn't it? That sermon always comes with guilt because we're all deficient in this area and the sermons always come across that way, but this one doesn't. So here's a clear exhortation for us to be involved in the lives of lost people and be distinctively different, but it doesn't begin with a command. It begins with identity. 
Look what he says. He says, you are the salt of the earth. If you mark in your Bible, circle those words, you are. Those are the most important words in this text. Verse 14, it says it again. You are the light of the world. It is subtle, but it's significant. When Jesus wants to motivate us, he motivates us by reminding us not primarily of what we should be doing, but of who we are. Now, this matters for a couple of reasons. It matters, first of all, because Christianity is always an inside-out religion. So everything that God wants to do through us, he first wants to do in us. God's ultimate desire is not to just get you to do the right things, it is to get you to be the right kind of person. And God's design is for what is flowing out of you to be that which is flowing in you. So if you did all the right things, but you didn't actually have a heart for God, God would not be pleased, and we know that because that's the Pharisees. They obeyed the rules, they did the right things, but their heart was far from God, and God was not pleased with that. One of the most important passages of Scripture in my life, and we spent some time at Prince in this uh, last fall, is in John 7, where Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of him will flow rivers of living water. And there's this picture I get, and this picture has been more important to my spiritual life than any other picture that I've ever gotten in Scripture. And it is this picture of the river of the presence of God, of God's presence, of God's spirit, of God's word constantly flowing into me as I'm receiving from him day by day by the power of the Holy Spirit from his word, just like you're doing now in a context like this. And God's design is that his presence would flow in me and then his presence would flow out of me. That's the picture of how life with Jesus works. Life with Jesus works where it begins with something inside of us, and then what is inside of us that is real and is authentic is then flowing out of us. And so Jesus begins here not motivating you by saying, this is what should be coming out from you. He motivates you by reminding you of what is already in you. I mean, John 3 is very clear that the first thing that has to happen in the life of anyone who wants to know Jesus is they must have a work of the Spirit of God inside of their heart. And so if you were invited by a friend tonight and you don't know the Lord, what has to happen before anything else happens, before anything else matters, is that you have the life of God in your heart. That you must have a John 3, you must be born again type of moment. You must know that your spirit is dead. There's no spiritual life here. And what you need is you need God to come and to bring to life your soul. And the way you do that is you acknowledge Jesus and his death on the cross is the payment for your sins. You ask him to save you. And what happens is God himself comes to dwell in you. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that when that happens, you begin to be a new creation. And so the work that God is doing in your heart, he always begins from the inside. It has to begin from the inside. I think about Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Paul says this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that verse would be problematic if we didn't have the next verse. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what it says is this. At salvation, God worked in you and he puts something new in your heart. And God is continuing. This is Philippians 1.6. God is continuing to do work in you. But the work that he's doing in you is a work that you must work out. So you work out what God has already worked in. So Jesus begins here motivating us by helping us to understand this begins with a you are statement. It's also important because that is the best way to motivate people. 
Like preachers are so bad at this. Tommy, you and I grew up around a lot of guilt-driven preaching. And I don't know if any of you grew up in a church where there was just a lot of guilt-driven preaching. I, this was my whole life. Everything was a guilt-driven sermon. But if you really want to motivate someone, you motivate them first by reminding them who they are and helping them understand that as a result of who they are and the fact that as a believer, the very life of God is in them, then all of a sudden that motivates them, not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of delight, and then they're living, living not driven by guilt, but by authenticity. That God's desire is that what he has put in you is now coming out of you. These you are statements are really important. We have a rule at my house. I have five kids. I have four daughters and a son. The son's at the very end there. And that guy lucky to have four sisters. He's got it made. It's an incredible life. So I've got these five kids, and we have a rule in our house that you can't make you are statements that are, are negative. Some of you guys have been through uh, this men's program I do called the Titus 10, and I talk about this in, in our talk on identity, that our kids can't say you are statements, and we're really big on this. And what I mean is, is this. Our kids can't say, you are so annoying. Now, they can say, you are being annoying, and they say that a lot and should say that because sometimes the kids are annoying, right? So just this morning, I thought about this just a minute ago. This morning, uh, we were at breakfast, and I asked my oldest daughter, uh, what, if you know her, don't tell her I told the story. I, I asked my oldest daughter what she had tonight, and she's going to this big event, and they're showing a movie, and she was so excited because it's kind of an obscure movie, but our family loves it, and she's seen it a hundred times, and she goes, Dad, I know every line in that movie. And I said, Lily, let me tell you something. Don't quote the lines of the movie while other people are watching it. That is super annoying. Isn't that the worst? When you're watching a movie with someone, and they keep repeating the lines, and part of it is, I think they know it. Part of it is, they just want you to know they know it. That is the most annoying thing in the world. If you're ever on a date, and you see a movie, and you've seen it before, don't do this. Last date, first date, last date, right there. Everybody hates this. That's the worst. And so I say, Lily, don't do this. That's so annoying. And so there are times in which you need to say, what you're doing is annoying. Annoying adults are annoying because when they're kids, no one said, you're being annoying. Everyone needs to hear this, but what you don't need to hear is this. You are annoying. You see the difference? You are annoying kind of speaks to your being. It like speaks to who you actually are. It speaks to the core of your identity. You are being annoying means that your actions are annoying, but it's not speaking to who you are. I can't tell you how many people I've met with, particularly as I minister to men, that are so defeated by so many things in their life. They have no sense of confidence. Uh, they don't feel like they can succeed in any area of their life. And the reason is, is most likely they were raised in a home where they heard a thousand you are statements that were negative, and every one of those began to define them. Some of you ladies have been bound by some you are statements. Somebody at some point in your life said you are such a, you are just like your, those things are really powerful. You are statements are incredibly powerful. The bad ones can keep you in bondage for your entire life. Do you know what a demonic stronghold is? A demonic stronghold is a lie that you believe, and it builds like a fortress around your mind. Many of our strongholds in our life, and they're demonic, our demonic strongholds are the lies that you've believed because someone said you are something that you're actually not. 
And you are bound by it. And it's destroying your life. It's destroying your relationships. It's destroying your ability to succeed in school and in work and any other area of your life. Why? Because someone casually or maybe someone intentionally and hurtfully spoke you are statements into your heart. And you're still believing them. But they're lies from the pit of hell. And the most important thing that has to happen in the life of a believer is a believer must begin to re understand his identity, to understand who you are as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so this is what Jesus does right here. He says, I want to start by talking to you about your core identity. Who are you? And he says two things. He says, you are the salt of the earth. This is who you are. And you are the light of the world. So the first word is identity. But the next word is this. Write this down. The next word is influence. You have to understand your identity before you can be a person of influence. If you don't begin to take down some of those demonic strongholds, and by the way, the way you do that is you, you discern a lie. Maybe some of you have them right now. There's some you are statement. You take that lie and you tear down that demonic stronghold with the truth. That's how you take down a, a demonic stronghold. And so you don't like have to cast it out. You, you get the truth. You just keep getting the truth to it and you bring down that stronghold. But if you want to be a person of influence, which is what this text is about, you have to know your identity. But the influence comes in terms of what it says here. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Those are two very influential things. Now, I think you'll understand this. There are two types of people in this world, generally speaking. There are overestimators and underestimators. Overestimators are those people who think they're much greater than they actually are. Have you ever been on a date with an overestimator? Someone who really thinks they're great. And maybe some of you are pointing at people next to you. When I said overestimators, which is not kind, you can say you are being an overestimator. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> and maybe you need to say that, actually. Uh, there's overestimators. So we know these people who just, I don't know where they get it. Like they just walk around with this sense that they're just incredible. And everyone should be in love with them. Like this is the most amazing thing. So you know some of these people. Those people are also annoying, okay? And then there's underestimators. The underestimators are the people who just think they're terrible and they think they're awful. But they walk around with no sense of confidence and no sense of identity. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I would love to talk about that. But there is something really sad about someone who doesn't understand that they've been created in the image of God and they're beautiful in the sight of God and God loves them and treasures them and he rejoices over them and he sings over them and that he just smiles when he thinks about you. There's underestimators, and I would say the vast majority of Christians, when it comes to who they are, are underestimators. We really don't think very highly of ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, not just ourself, but who we are as followers of Jesus. And that's the craziest thing, because the Bible over and over tries to get us to understand the glory that has been placed upon us by the Holy Spirit of God when we come to know Christ. I think we fail to realize the significance that we can have and the significance of who we are in Christ Jesus. And these two terms help us to understand. Look at the first one. Look at verse 13. You are first the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. So I just kind of looked the way in which salt is used in the, in the New Testament. It's used 11 times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, as you know, as a preservative, something that preserves something. So a great example of this is David Livingston. I love missionary biographies. So I got in the habit when I was in college in which I read a missionary biography every January, and I still 
do it. I read uh, a book this January on Spurgeon and his pastoral ministry. So uh, every January I try to read a biography. David Livingston is a great one. Uh, not only a faithful missionary and a man of God, but really influential just in his understanding of Africa. He went places no one else had ever been. Uh, he died in Africa. He was from England. And so what they did is the Africans cut him open, took his heart out, and buried his heart in Africa and wanted to send his body back to England. The problem is when he died, he was 1,200 miles from the nearest coast, and then it was going to take about two months to get his body from the coast back home. That's a really long time for a dead body. I've never done much with dead bodies, uh, but it seems like, not much, but it seems like um, that would be a problem. So here's what they did. The Africans rubbed his body down with salt and left him out in the sun for two weeks and then just shipped him off. That's how they did it right there. Like it preserved his body for two full months by rubbing him over with salt and putting him out in the sun. It's not great sunscreen. Like if you want to do that, it's not a good idea, but that's what they did. And the whole point is it's a preservative. It keeps things from decaying. And so the picture is this. The picture is that the world is decaying. Wouldn't you acknowledge that? Wouldn't you acknowledge that things don't seem to be getting better morally? And w- isn't it amazing how quickly things are getting worse morally? Like you just, it, you can't even believe where we are and the things that we're saying and the things we're doing because there's this massive moral decay. And when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, what he's saying is, I have placed you on this earth that you might stop the decaying of the place in which I have put you. That is an amazing thought. That every place God has put you, listen, should be better because you're there. It should be better because you're there. That the influence of this group of people, even among the tens of thousands of college students here, this group of people should be some agent to preserve from the decay that is constantly happening right here around you. That's the vision that God has of your life. Why? Because you're salt. You actually have that ability. You have the power to do that. God has made you as a new creation in Jesus Christ, born again, adopted into the family, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, an heir of all the promises of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit. The promised inheritance all is yours because all of that is yours. You are the salt of the earth. You have the ability to stop the decaying of the world around you. And let me just tell you some of the practical application, and this is, if you know me and if you come to Prince, I'm not like a social justice guy. I'm a gospel Jesus all the time guy. But it's impossible to read this text and not think that to some probably great degree, God's vision for believers is to be involved in areas of decay, in areas of social justice, and influence them in such a way that we hinder the progress of the decaying. That's a part of the calling on our lives. I think about in Jeremiah 29 when God sends his people into exile, into Babylon, and he says this to his people. He says, while you're here, seek the welfare of the place that I have put you. And so God has put you here. He's put you on this campus He has put you in your dorm. He has put you in your apartment complex. Wherever he has put you, his assignment for you is this. Then I have put you there to seek the good of the place. And if you see things that are not good, if you see things that are morally wrong and evil, it is your responsibility to do anything you can in your power to stop the continual decaying of society. 
And it, in one sense, this is a command to go do this, but in really, it's more of a statement so that you would be aware that you have that ability in you because you have Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says, you are the, the salt of the earth. Look what else he says. Look at the next verse, verse 14. He says, and you are the light of the world. The world is not only decaying, but the world is dark. And so the world should be brighter uh, because you're in it. Like there should be more brightness in the room when you go in. And brightness in your apartment, and dorm, wherever it is, there's light that is there. Now John 7 is very clear that Jesus is the light of the world. And one of the most important Old Testament prophecies, these themes that go throughout the Old Testament is the coming of the light. That Jesus will be the light uh, one of the last prophecies we have is the Son of Righteousness will come, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness. So he is the light of the world. And so if he is the light of the world, how are we the light of the world? And I think you know the answer, but I learned the answer from a children's book that my kids have called Full Moon Rising. It's the story of an arrogant moon. That's right, he's an arrogant moon. It has a picture of the moon, and the moon has a face on it, and his face is just really smug and condescending and arrogant. He just has this look about him. And the reason he's so arrogant is because of all the power he has. So he begins to talk about how he has the ability to light up the entire sky at night. He has the ability to change shapes. So sometimes he can be full and sometimes he can be half and sometimes he can be a sliver. He talks about his ability to change colors. Sometimes he's bright orange and sometimes he's blue and sometimes he looks white. And he talks about his ability to change the tides, literally the entire ocean is moving because of the moon. And the moon is talking about the way in which he influences the tides. And in all of his arrogance, in one moment he's confronted with the, the sun. And all of a sudden he realizes that the only reason he's able to do anything is because he's catching the light from the sun. And so that's how you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world because you have, 2 Corinthians 4, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is in you. And listen to this. The degree to which you are close to Jesus is the degree to which you will shine. So do you remember Moses in Exodus, I believe it's Exodus, is it 38? It's right in there, in which Moses is continuing to go up, 28. Uh, he's continuing to go up to the mountain to meet with God, and he's receiving the law. And Moses comes down with a part of the law. And as he does, he has to put a veil over his face because his face is shining so brightly that people can't look at him in the face. Like, that's a vision for you. That's a life goal. Not literally that your face would shine. But that you would walk in such proximity to Jesus, that you would be so intimate with him, that you would be so close to him, that you would spend time with him in the morning so that in spending time with him, there might be some reflection of his glory that is coming off of you the rest of the day. You say, why is it important for me to spend time with Jesus every day? Because you have been called and created to be the light of the world. And the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ is in you. And the only way it's going to show out of you is in proximity to Jesus. He says, you are the light of the world. And so this is the influence that we have. Out of our identity, here's who we are and the influence God wants us to have. But let me give you the last word very quickly. It is the word strategy. So we begin with identity. Identity is uh, I am salt of the earth and light of the world because of what God has done in me. I am uh, adopted and redeemed and loved and chosen by God. And so this is who I am. 
and then we look at this idea of influence. Because of who I am, God wants me to be a person of influence. The question is, practically, how do we do that? What is the strategy? Well, let me, let me give you some just kind of practical thoughts here. The first one is this. The first strategy from this text is this. Be pure. Be pure. It says here, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Listen to me. Salt can't lose its taste. Salt can be mixed with sand and can be impure, and then it doesn't taste like salt. Salt in and of itself really can't lose its taste. Salt can't lose the element in that way, but salt, when mixed with sand, loses its sense of saltiness. And so the point for you is this, is that you are the salt of the earth, but impurity causes you to lose that saltiness. That's why your more purity matters so much. The reason it matters that you walk with Jesus, the reason it matters that you're fighting sin is because your ability to be a preserving agent in the place where God has put you depends in great deal to the purity of your life. Listen to me. Your influence in much part is a result of your purity. Your influence is to a great degree determined by your purity. So that's why James 1.27 says, keep yourself unstained by the world. And 1 Peter 2.12 says, keep your uh, behavior excellent. Because, listen to this, if everything is from the inside out, listen to this, if everything is from the inside out, but there is a lot of moral impurity on the inside that nobody knows but you, isn't it going to be hard for what's coming out of you to be healthy if what's inside of you is not healthy? So the significance is not just the guilt that it puts on you, but... The fact that it hurts your effectiveness. And so be pure is the first one. The second one is this, be obvious. <laughs> be obvious. It says here uh, in verse 14, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. There's that word, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. The point there is God's desire, a city on, on a hill, a lamp on a stand, is that you would not be like a lamp, a light that has a shade over it, but you would be obviously Christian. And at some point, every believer has to die to this fear that everyone's going to figure out that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and be as obvious as we possibly can. Because God's vision for you is to be a city on a hill and a light that is shining. And so the question would be, just on a regular basis, what is the difference in the way in which your life looks and the life of those around you? Are you an obvious Christian? Are you overtly Christian? Let me just tell you, you know the easiest way to do that? Isn't it interesting how when we're in this room, we use words like we're blessed and we love Jesus and God is good, but when we talk to people who don't know Jesus, we change those words? One of the most, uh, one of the easiest ways to be more obvious is just to openly just talk about Jesus. Just talk about what God's doing in your life. Just make him a part of your everyday conversation. Be pure, be obvious, listen to this, be near. Be near. This is not a difficult one for you. But the reality is none of this is possible unless we're constantly in the company of those who do not know Jesus Christ. It is impossible for our light to shine very brightly in a room like this where there's so much light. But in places in which there is darkness, as you step into those places, your light is more clearly seen. So God's desire is to bring you into environments like he has brought you on this campus so that your light can shine. Be pure, be obvious, be near. Here's the last one and I'm going to be done. Be good. Be good. 
I thought a lot about this text this morning, and I just kept thinking about how important it is for us. And listen, again, I think those of you who know me, like I'm such a, a word-centered gospel guy, but, but here's the thing. Like I think we underestimate the significance of just the good that you can do. Like be kind, be gracious, give, help. Like step into difficult situations. Stop when you see someone who needs help. Like pick stuff up, like just be good. Like make sure that your life is constantly exuding this goodness, that there are actually good things that are being done by you on a regular basis. I think about the book of Titus. Paul uh, dropped uh, Titus off in this place called Crete. It was one of the darkest uh, places spiritually that you could imagine. It was decaying and it was dark. Uh, Nobody there seemed to walk with the Lord and Paul dropped Titus off and he wrote him a letter. 46 verses in this letter and in 46 verses six times he says this teach the people to do good works teach the people to do good works he said make them zealous for good works make them eager to do good works make them devoted to good works because what Paul knew is in a society that is so dark and so decaying one of the best things believers can do is just good works for the glory of God we tend to over-spiritualize this, and the reality is God is just saying, get out there, walk with Jesus Christ, stay pure, be obvious, and be a good human being. That by your goodness, you're noticeable, and you have the opportunity to show people the goodness of Jesus Christ. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you enjoyed this week's message, share it with a friend. To stay up to date with us, follow us on Instagram at UGABCM. We hope to see you next Monday night at Gathering.